Welcome to the Self-Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self-Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How are you doing today? Good to see you all. It's just what a beautiful day. It's great to have you guys here at South. If you're online, it's great to have you at home, but here in spirit and all those good things. Uh, so I just want to, before I start, my name's Alex, I'm one of the pastors here, just wanted to celebrate with you guys that are part of this community. Uh, we ran a thing for the first time last week that we're calling the First Mile Initiative. We drew a circle around South and said we would love to help this area of our community just see it just flourish and grow. We love Littleton, we'd love to just see it be all it can be. And so we sent about 100 people out last week. And I just want to give a shout out to Dan, to Jody, to Jessica, the team that put that together. Let's give them a round of applause because they, uh, they rocked it out. It was, it was a ton of fun just to be involved. I just drove around the different projects, being no practical help whatsoever. Um, but I feel like I did my bit for the culture and all those kind of things. When lifting men's hearts or whatever you might say. Coming down the line, I just want to give you a little update what we're doing over the next few months as we think about teaching, what we're learning together. We're going to spend some time starting on May 23rd in this book, Luke. It's one of the biographies of Jesus' life, if you're new to the whole church thing. We're going to spend time looking at every time Jesus sits at a table with people. One of the things I love about Jesus is he's constantly gathering with people that aren't like him, that don't believe the same things as him. And yet when they come away from the conversation, something about their life is changed. And so the dream for us is, what would it look like if we became those kind of people, actually having those good interactions, having healthy dialogues, and seeing the world become a better place because of it? And, and when we're done with Luke, we're going to move on to this book, Acts, which is the story of the early church, how they figured out how to be be followers of Jesus together. And so we're going to go kind of more verse by verse through that. And so I'm excited to do that with you. That's what we're going to kick off on May 23rd, which is Pentecost Sunday. Maybe a term that's unfamiliar to some of you. It's the day that the church, remember the day that the spirit came down and, and everything changed then. And so we're going to celebrate that by doing baptisms. If you have never been baptized, if you would like to be baptized, we're going to have the good old horse trough out the front uh, and we will dunk you down and if you have been good, we will pull you back up. No, we won't do that. <laughs> the viciousness of it. We will judge you by how bad you have been, and that's how long we will hold you down. There's some scientific process. It is this delightful celebration of new life, and we would love you to take that journey uh, with the other people that are signed up. So all that to say, good things happening. And now we return to this series that we're, we're getting close to done with, that we called Searched. Exploring questions people are actually asking. We looked at the most Google questions, uh, most Googled questions about faith. We looked at the algorithms, looked at why people were looking at them. And, and the one thing we found is there's usually a question behind the question. It's not always the surface question that seems to be the, the thing, but there's something else going on. So I'm going to give you the behind, what I think is behind this one first before I give you the actual question. Here we go. How do you know you are getting older. How do you know you are getting older? What happens, what changes take place that makes you say, oh man, life is a little different now than it used to be. There are some things that aren't working, functioning in quite the same way. It is a pattern every one of us will experience. 
and I'm too young to stand up here and whine about getting older. I know that would be an insult to some of you, but I'm old enough to know that this is a reality, and so I'm, I'm with you. I'm one of you guys. Here are some different ways. You're officially old if you are injured by sleeping. If you wake up and things don't work anymore, age is starting to take its toll. It's coming for you, friends. It's coming for you. I went skiing with a group of young guys once, and I complained the next day to my boss about aching. And he said to me, wait till you're my age, then you don't need to go skiing to ache the next morning. How about this one? I used to sneak out of my house to go to parties. Now I sneak out of parties to go to my house. I'm just done with these people. I'm going back to where it's safe and cozy. There's a blanket with my name on it, and I'm sure they're still showing the office reruns and stuff like that. Uh, how about if you are officially old, if you can tell the weather with your knees? Some of you guys are like, there's a storm coming tonight. I can feel it. It's already starting to build up. And then if you have a direct correlation between these two articles, um, I will tell you if you come ask me what was on my awesome party mix. It dates me enough to say that the first album I ever owned was Bad by Michael Jackson, which is some time ago now. But I still remember cutting out the DJ's voice, pressing pause on the record so I could get all of my songs off the radio. And some of you guys are like, you couldn't write a vinyl. There was stuff before this, you know. So... This all leads to the question. That's a heavy question. What happens when you die? This was one of the most Googled questions about faith. What happens? Is there, is there just nothing? Is there some kind of like disembodied evacuation where the spirit part of you gets to go and you just you fly and there's something up there that's good for everybody? Is that the reality? Is there these bad places and the, uh, these good places? Like what happens? What's the process? What, what can I expect? And just like those other questions that we might reflect on and say, yes, we all are definitely getting older. We experience the slow disintegration of our bodies over time. There is this thing that that's leading up to, like what happens when the juice is gone? What happens when there's no more energy left? What happens when the final breath is taken? And for some of you, that's a deeply personal question right now because you've lost someone that you love in the last few months. For some of us, it's just a question we contemplate regularly. And for some of us, it's a question we avoid at all costs. Like, I'm going to whistle past that graveyard. I'm going to pretend it's not there and it doesn't affect me. And yet it does. And, and so to get into this question a little bit, we're going to start somewhat lighthearted with these guys. So obviously, Peter Pan, Captain Hook, the famous story, the boy who doesn't grow up, he goes off to Neverland and he does his thing. Life is good for Peter Pan. Captain Hook is the villain that is constantly trying to catch him and the lost boy is constantly trying to do bad things. What I love most about this story is there are so many different ways to read it. There is a reading of J.M. Barry's Peter Pan that says that, well, actually, Peter Pan is the bad guy and Captain Hook is the good guy. Peter Pan is very determined that none of his lost boys are allowed to grow up. And in the slightly dark sort of original story, when any of them try to grow up, it says that Peter thins out the herd. He gets rid of them. And you know what I mean by he gets rid of them. Peter will not stand for growing up. And so this theory goes that, well, actually, Captain Hook was the first lost boy to escape Peter Pan. And now he looks after those that managed to escape and he's constantly trying to help the lost boys escape from the evil Peter Pan. That's one slightly interesting reading. But there is a definite allegoricalness to this story. 
Peter Pan represents all of us as we would love to be, without aging, constantly energetic, no struggles, our knees never tell us that the storm is coming. There is no breakdown. The party goes on forever. That is who Peter Pan is. And Captain Hook, well, Hook is who we really are. In many Eastern religions, like thousands of years ago, the crocodile represented death. And so think what Hook has experienced. The crocodile death has got a piece of him. And now for the rest of his life, it chases after him. Tick, 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 tick. And Hook is constantly in terror, constantly fleeing this thing that is coming after him. Tick, 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 tick. This is the experience of Hook. And this is, right, this is who we are. We are people that constantly ask that question. What happens when it's the end? We either ask it or we avoid it. And so what's the option? So one option is this. This is the philosopher Marcus Aurelius lived sort of a couple of thousand years ago. Death smiles at all of us. All we can do is smile back. Just give death a smile and just wander into it. We all have to go through it. It's going to be fine. We'll just figure it out. That, that's one of the options. Or do we hope that there's like this disembodied evacuation where we get to go to the famous pearly gates and there's, there's like the wings on the gates for some reason. I don't know why gates have wings, but these ones do. Um, be careful with your stock photos. They'll lead you into some odd theological trajectories. But there's this expectation that maybe there's just this thing that we'll just get to and our spirits will fly away. What does Jesus say about that? What do the writers of the Bible say about that? What does the Christian faith say about that? Now, if you are sort of new to faith or you're exploring, that's a great place to be in. Uh, what I would say is this. I'm going to give you the answer that, that the Christian writers give, that Jesus gives. There are a ton of ideas in the existential marketplace of faith, and you are quite free to go and explore as many of them as you want. But I'm not going to try and give you every faith's different answer. What I'm going to tell you is this is what Jesus says you can expect. And, and what I love about Jesus and his answers is if we believe the story, Jesus is the only person that has been through it to come back never to die again. So in my mind, he has this credibility that I'm, I'm really interested in the answers of a man who has been where I'm going to tread. I don't want to go mountain climbing with any of you guys that have never been before and are like, no, it's going to be fine. I want to go with the experts, and it seems like this is how Jesus presents himself. So we're going to jump into this book. If you have a text in front of you, a Bible, in paper, online, uh, we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. If those numbers mean nothing to you, then that's absolutely fine as well. Most of it will come up on the screen. Now, brothers and sisters, this is a guy writing called Paul. He was one of Jesus' first followers, and he's writing to a church in a town called Corinth. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. In this case, the word gospel, what does it mean? It just simply means good news. This guy writing believes that he has given good news to these people, and he's going back, and he's sort of reiterating what he said, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this good news, this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Verse 3, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And this is it. He's going to give us the summary. If we wanted to boil it down to one particular idea that this whole good news of Jesus means, this is it. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Why is he so keen to, to remind us that Jesus actually died and was buried and three days later came back? 
In Jewish thinking, you had a spirit and a body, and when you died, your spirit hovered around for three days until it departed somewhere else away from the body. So in Paul's mind, when he says three days, this is like after the Jewish people would said, okay, now you're really dead. Now like dead is dead on three days and there's no coming back from that. It's long enough, it's like, okay, this really is spectacular. This isn't something that happens just every day. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And after that, he appeared to Cephas. It's a name for Peter, one of his earliest followers. And then to the 12, the 12 earliest followers of Jesus. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. This writer Paul is really keen that we know, the church in Corinth, and then correspondingly we know that Jesus definitely died, definitely physically came back to life, and didn't just appear to a couple of people, he appeared to hundreds of people. Why is he concerned about this? This letter is written maybe 20, 30 years after Jesus has died and risen again, and the church has encountered this problem. For some reason, they didn't believe that anybody would die after Jesus had died and rose again. They believed that Jesus had gone somewhere and he was going to come back, and that was going to happen before any of them started dying, and now some of them are dying. So the question has become, well, what's going on? Did the plan go wrong? What are we supposed to expect? We thought that this thing was going to wrap up pretty soon, and yet we're here and we're dying. What has happened to those people that have died? Have they gone to some distant place? Will they come back to life at some point? Like, All these different questions were now starting to circulate. And a whole group of people had started to say, well, maybe there is no real physical resurrection. Maybe we're not going to rise again like Jesus did. He came back in a body... Maybe we'll just, like, there'll be some disembodied thing that we'll go off to, and maybe it's all over there somewhere, and maybe that's what will happen. All these questions were starting to come up, and Paul's writing to this church that he cares about deeply. It's like, I'm going to give you the answers. Jesus came back physically. Some of these earliest followers have fallen asleep, but most of them are still alive. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. James, in this case, is a brother of Jesus. If you can convince your brother that you are the son of God, that's impressive. Generally, siblings do not believe those things about other siblings. Some of you have siblings, you know. Like this guy, never, not a chance. And yet James, this brother of Jesus, has come to believe everything Jesus has said. Last of all, he appeared to me, Paul, as to one abnormally born. Paul wasn't around, it seems, when Jesus was on earth teaching and then when he died, but it seems like he had this experience of Jesus afterwards. For I am the least of the apostles. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. This is what you believed. He goes back to them time and time again. What we told you is this. Jesus died. He died for you. He rose again. You will do the same. That is a pretty audacious claim. It's a pretty extravagant claim. And it wasn't just a pretty extravagant claim like just now. It, it was an extravagant claim then. We, we can have this view of people in the first century. We, we kind of think of them as these quaint sort of like, oh, well, of course, They believed in things like resurrections back then. 
Of course, they believed in miracles and things back then. And yet, the dead people stayed dead with the same monotony in the first century as they stayed dead in the 21st century. This back then was an audacious, spectacular claim. Let's move on a little bit. Next verse. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. He gets a little bit philosophical with them. He starts to push them a little bit. If you're saying that we won't rise, then, then there's no resurrection. That means it didn't happen to Jesus either. And suddenly the whole basis of everything starts to fall about. One of the interesting things about life in the way of Jesus is everything rises and falls on this idea. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we can all go home, friends. Like we can take Sunday mornings off. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we may as well be at home in our gardens on Sunday morning, planting flowers and things like that. If there is no resurrection, then this whole thing just, it just falls apart. That is how much Paul is willing to base on this one audacious, kind of crazy idea. And here's where I find it interesting. Ancient Jewish thought, like first century AD, was in deep disagreement about what happened when you died. There are a whole group of Jewish people that said it just ends there. That's why it's so important to get the good blessings out of life. It's so important to get married, have kids, so you can leave a legacy. It's so good, important to build up wealth. You'll get to hand it on to them. It's so good to get the certainties out of life. And that's why they were so clear. If bad stuff happened, it's because you weren't blessed. That was, that was bad. That was no good. You needed to get the good stuff out of life here because after this, you were done. Leave your legacy and then it's over. There were another group of people that believed in that disembodied sort of thing. There's a spiritual thing that's going to happen one day. But then there were another group of people that very much had locked into this idea. No, it's physical. No, it's actually going to happen. As crazy as that sounds, dead bodies will rise again. And Paul, he sort of at times, he'll, he'll sort of play these two sides off against each other. He'll tap into this idea just a little bit. This is him in this book, Acts, in the middle of a big argument. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. It is because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. As soon as he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and Sadducees. And the Pharisees got up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. Now, you don't need to know who all those groups are and all those detailed terms. All you need to know is there were two sides. One that said, yes, resurrection. One that said, not going to happen. And Paul is playing them off against each other. But he, he's very much on this side. The resurrection is real. It is practical. It is what we are waiting for. So we're going to go back to his letter to these, this church in Corinth. We're going to skip down a bit if you're following along in your text. We're going to drop down to verse 35. You can read the rest of it. It's great, but we just can't get through everything I would like to get through without overrunning again. And you guys, you just, you don't have the stomach for overrunning. You all complain and stuff. But, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? They want details, as maybe we do. Like, what, how specifically... Is this going to work? What, what is it going to look like? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that well will be, but just a seed. 
perhaps of wheat or something else, but God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Paul captures this picture of seeds and what they become, and this works well for this time of year because some of you are getting out in the gardens, the yards, you're doing your yard work, you're making all these things happen, and you're planting seeds. Yesterday, I just scattered some wild seeds because I just wanted to see what comes up. I love the hummingbirds, the butterflies, just the the energy that it brings to the garden, so I'm just putting seeds out, but I don't know what's about to appear. And Paul takes this theme And he starts to talk about how the Jesus story works in line with this idea of seeds and what they grow into. And think about that for a second. Think about what that means. Think about what it is for a seed to be taken and put into the ground. From the seed's perspective, what is that? It's burial, right? It's it's, it's like death. It's this moment where the seed is put in the ground and everything is covered over and it goes dark. But, But what is really happening? What is really happening is all the right environment is sort of taking place to make something different happen. Something way up there calls down to this thing way down in the ground and everything begins to germinate and suddenly new life shoots up from this seed that was dead and that was buried and it turns out that the seed wasn't dead and buried. It was simply planted and that is this opportunity for new life to begin. And think about how that relates to the Jesus story. There is this moment where Jesus died He is buried, the ground closes over, everything is done. And then something way up there begins to call to something way down there and new life begins to take shape. And it turns out that he wasn't really buried. He was simply planted. That is this moment of new life. And Paul says that thing, that Jesus experience, that is what is waiting for you. As audacious, as ostentatious, as extravagant, as absurd as that claim may seem, that is what is waiting for you. The same resurrection Jesus experienced, that's what is on offer for you. That's what his claim is. Now, I understand the struggle for some of us to believe that story. But isn't that a story that is so good that everyone would want to believe it? There is something incredible about the idea that one day the knees that tell me when a storm is coming will work again. One day, death will work backwards. One day, I won't have to worry about the crocodile that keeps chasing after me. Tick, tick, tick. One day, all of that will go away. That's, that's the promise. And it is ostentatious. It, it is extravagant. And yet, it is so good that the longing for it to be true, to me, is just like, how can you not want that to be true? Paul says, someday the seed will die. And you can't know exactly what it's going to look like until it happens. But there are hints. Moving on. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. So he's starting to talk about this next thing that might be experienced. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind. The splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. He's like, the thing is coming, and it's kind of like you experience now, but with something a little more, there is no deterioration there, there is no limbs breaking apart, there is no falling apart of the body, there is no all of those things we talked about. You may still go to parties and not want to go home in the resurrection. We will see. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, 
and sleep is his word for death. He doesn't acknowledge that followers of Jesus actually die. He just refers to it as the sleep. But we will all be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye. The last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. Again, the the claims are, are incredible, and yet they are what they are. This is what he demands, almost, that this group of people believe. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's commentary over and over again is, it is as bad as it seems. You will die, you are broken, and yet one is an offer is resurrection. Again, the claim is incredible. The claim is over the top. But it is wonderful and all of those different things as well. I can understand you holding the tension of can I believe this? But the, the deep longing to believe it seems just like how can you not want this to be true? And just to show you this is like generally how Paul thinks about these things. We're going to skip to this other letter to a church in Philippi. But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Paul's idea over and over again is one day your body will look something like Jesus did when he was raised. So we get to do what is traditional at Eastertide, this time of year that comes right after Easter. We get to go and glance at some of those post-resurrection appearances of Jesus and say, well, what did his body look like? What did Jesus' post-resurrection appearances look like? If we want to know what resurrection looks like, if we want to know what happens when we die, well, this is the first thing that we'll look at. When he was at the table with them, he took bread. He gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. Then the eyes were opened and they recognized him. He disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? A couple of Jesus' earliest followers, when Jesus dies, they do the obvious thing. They get out of town. The Romans that have hunted for Jesus are probably looking for them, and they say, we're done with this, and they go. And suddenly this man appears on the side of the road walking with them. They don't recognize him. He's going to carry on his journey. They say, stop with us. They stop He does the traditional thing of breaking bread. And in that moment, they recognize him. Watch for this pattern. You're going to see this everywhere. He took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. Ordinary, everyday, physical activity. He disappeared from their sight. They didn't recognize him. Some kind of different physicality that is going on there. The post-resurrection appearances of Jesus constantly have this mix of ordinary, everyday, mundane, touch, physical things. And yet they also have this different thing that is starting to emerge, this different way of being physical in the world. While they were describing these events, they go and tell all their other friends, as you might when you've suddenly seen someone who was dead and then was alive again. Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be with you. But they were startled and frightened, thinking they had seen a spirit. Why are you troubled, Jesus asked. Why did doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And 
When he said this, he showed them his hands and feet, which still have the signs of crucifixion, and yet he is not bleeding, not dying. While they were still in disbelief because of their joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish. Apparently, that was the best they had on offer, broiled fish. And then he took it and ate it in front of them. It seems that he's hungry, that he wants to eat. It is ordinary, everyday, physical events like breakfast and food coupled with supernatural, spectacular things like he appeared in the room amongst them and they were full of disbelief. John chapter 20, a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. The doors were locked. He is now wandering through locked doors and standing amongst them. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe, yet he can be touched. It is this different physicality and yet still physical, still touchable. Then Jesus told them, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. One more, John 21. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. They have been with him for three years and yet they don't know that it is him. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. They have this sort of awakening moment. Wait, we've done this thing before. This isn't the first time someone told us to throw the net in and suddenly fish started jumping in out of their own choice. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him, Say it is the Lord. He wrapped his outer garment around him for he'd taken it off and jumped into the water. Apparently in the first century, you fish with no clothes on and when you go swimming, you put clothes on. I don't even know how to explain that to you, but that's what we're told. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish. They went the traditional way. Peter was the guy that's like, I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to go swimming in a robe. For they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat, dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. These resurrection appearances are filled with the normal breakfast, broiled fish, everyday physicality, just like today, and yet with the not normal, the resurrection, the walking through walls, the suddenly he disappeared and they didn't recognize him. There is something different going on here. Jesus' resurrection appearances are physical with a new expression of physicality. There is a new normal at play. And Paul says, one day for you, as followers of Jesus, resurrection looks something like that. I can't say exactly what. He's talking about a mystery, but he says one day there is this resurrection to come where suddenly the old rules don't apply. There is no decrepit knees. There is no falling apart of the body. And yet, some of the old rules still apply. There is breakfast and gathering around fires and community and food and all of those good things. Jesus' resurrection appearances are physical with a new expression of physicality. And that, fits within a new creation still to come. Paul, it seems, is convinced that Jesus' resurrection 
your resurrection and my resurrection are connected to something that God is doing in the whole world that is still to come. These earliest followers were very comfortable with the fact that Jesus had done something and yet they were waiting for something more. Does this already done? Does this not yet happen? So we're going to skip to a passage for those of you that come every week, which is some of you, lots of you, uh, most of you. I don't know how to describe that. You've all got masks on. I can never tell who's here and who's not here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. So we're going to pause there a second. This writer John, this book Revelation starts to unpack. There's, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. What does that mean? Well, we'll get to that in a little bit. There's no longer any sea. This book is what's called apocalyptic literature. If you read the Bible, my question for you is how many of you read the book of Revelation in like your daily Bible reading time? I'm guessing not that many of you because it gets pretty confusing pretty fast. This book is full of symbolism, different language. That doesn't mean it's not true. It doesn't mean there's not events that will happen. What it does mean is sometimes it will pick on images, and this is a good example, that that it describes describing something maybe not apparent. What's the problem with the sea? I want the sea. I love my beach vacations. Some of my favorite places in the world are right next to the ocean. I love the, the, just the majesty, the peace, all those kind of things. Is God saying no more sea? In the ancient world, there were no beach vacations. In the ancient world, the sea was a place of mystery, of danger, of evil in their sort of primordial history. Some of the first evil creatures had emerged from the sea. If land was where God was, sea was where God wasn't. So when this writer says there will be no longer any sea, it may be physically true, who knows? But what he's really saying is one day there'll be a world where we're not saying there's parts that God isn't in control of. There's parts that are lost. There's parts that are a mystery. He's starting to say, no, one day God will reshape the world in order. One day he will bring it about so that it is working as it's supposed to be. Remember that conversation we had a few weeks ago about our broken world? One day he's saying that will be as true of the world as it is of your knees that feel the storm that is coming. All of this stuff is getting restored. Just like there was this disagreement about what would happen when you died, in the Jewish world there was a big disagreement about what happened to this world. Would God destroy it? He'd said about creating a new heavens and a new earth, did that mean that he was going to wipe out this old one? For some Jewish people, that would be difficult to believe. There's this moment in this book, Genesis, where we see there's a flood. The flood withdraws, and then God says, I will never flood the earth again. To a Jewish person, knowing the character of God, the implication is, I won't destroy the world again. For them to imagine that really God was kind of like, behind his hand, sort of like, yeah, but wait and see, there's plenty of other ways to destroy the world. I'll give you fire next time, would have been very much out of line with what they understood of God's character. To them, a promise was a promise. If God said he wouldn't destroy the world, then he wouldn't destroy the world. So a big discussion came up. Well, are we talking about new? Are we talking about renewed? Is there a possibility that God is still fighting for this world, still working within it? Is there a possibility that something new is still to come? And when this writer, John, has to pick out of two Greek words, neos, which means new in time, like it wasn't there, now it is, or kainos, this is a different kind of thing, this is like new of its kind, then, then he picks the second one. For some reason, the second one is the one he goes for. He doesn't go for brand new, just appeared. 
He goes for kindness. This is a world that we haven't experienced before. And most of you have experienced something new, right? You've got married, you've had kids or something like that. And you're like, wow, this is a whole new way of living. Have you lived before? Absolutely you have. Are you living a new type of life right now? Absolutely you are. Something significant has changed. This wrestling went on and on with what exactly did he mean when he picked out of these two different words? And so some writers on this book, Revelation, will even use the language, this is the world renewed. This is God still fighting for it, still shaping it. And to be honest, I'm I'm comfortable with you believing whichever you want. You can go and research it. I'm not going to give you a definite answer because I don't have one. It's one of those things where you say, I'm not sure, but somewhere I love this idea that there can be something new, like, but kind of there before. I was going to use this as an illustration, but I think we're running out of time. So I'm just going to leave that as a mystery. And that will really irritate some of you who now have like knowledge deficit. Why was he going to talk about Vibram Five Fingers running shoes? There was a reason. Neos or Kainos? New in time or new in kind? World renewed? What exactly is going on here? What we can say is regardless of whatever takes place, The promise of Revelation is, well, this is a new that is better than new. It is not just fresh created. There is something of the old still lurking there. The good things like breakfast with friends and gathering around food seem like they're still incorporated in this Jesus story. And so we wait and say, God, you promised one day a new world. What will it look like? We're held in that tension and asked to trust that it will be better than new. I love how human beings have thought about how we might develop this world, how we might protect it. In the 1960s, an architect called Buckminster Fuller came up with a plan. He said, let's put a geodesic dome over New York City. This takes some serious ambition. He said, what we can do then is we can keep it at this nice ambient temperature. No one will have to heat their apartment. We'll pay for this dome in 10 winters because we won't have to shovel the snow in that area of Manhattan. And it's apparently that expensive to shovel snow in Manhattan. So he came up with this plan. This was his vision of a new world. And this hasn't stopped there. We're constantly dreaming about how this world might operate better. This is a project going on in Singapore right now where they've started to try and flip the script. They've said, right now, we think of gardens as being something in amongst a city. What would it feel like? What would it look like if we suddenly said cities were something in amongst gardens? What if gardens and space were like the primary way of thinking about it? Now, do any of these work? Do any of of them solve the problem? No, but I love just what humans are able to achieve just in their own energy. Imagine what the world looks like if the God of the universe turns his attention to that moment and says, I'm going to renew this world. I'm going to shape it in the way it was supposed to be shaped. And there will be no more sea. There will be no more areas where you say God is not in control of that. That is Paul's vision for what new creation looks like. It starts with resurrection individual. It grows to resurrection corporate, a whole new world, a whole new thing going on. But what I would say is this. To unlock Revelation, these are some words that are important. Like Genesis, Revelation seems more interested in questions about who and why rather than what and when. Most of the conversation as you read this incredibly detailed book is around, well, it will be God that will do it. One day God will step in and this world will be renewed or new in some 
way. It's very interested in the question of why God still loves this world. He's still fighting for it, still developing. It is not so interested in exactly what will happen. We don't get to know all of that. Just like Paul said, it's a mystery. It is a mystery. And it's not super interested in when. We get to wait. We are asked to wait. We have to wait. But we're told that the thing is coming. I love that this book, Revelation, it uses language that reminds me of my beloved J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm surprised I've been with you guys eight months and I've not quoted any Tolkien. I just find him just brilliant in his way of writing. And this is the language he uses about death. The gray rain curtains of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass. And then you see it, white shores and beyond a far green country under a swift sunrise. When this writer to this of this letter Revelation, when he starts to unpack exactly what this next world looked like, looks like he uses ideas like gates made out of pearls. He uses ideas like streets made of gold. Could they be practically true? Maybe. Do they have to be physically true? I don't think so. Driving on streets of gold sounds like an awfully impractical way to drive, and yet the ideas are supposed to give us the sense of the beauty and the wonder of this world that is still to come. Again, could be physically true, could also not be, could just be symbolic. This is the language that he relies on. There is something that is coming that is beautiful, and we get to be excited for it. But what he does say that that is concrete is this. This is a song that has been sung to Jesus in this book, Revelation. You, Jesus, are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. You were slain. You have redeemed us, saved us, rescued us, all those different words, to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Still, again, you see that mixture of the normal physicality. There is this world, but this is you and I involved practically walking alongside God, journeying through creation, not just sitting on a cloud somewhere playing a harp. How many of you, when you have heard heaven described, have said, that sounds kind of boring? I actually am not sure that I want to just sit and play harp music all day long. The reason it sounds boring is because in nowhere, no place does the Bible say that is what a new world, a new creation looks like. It is pictured around these things like a world that God is in control of, that you are involved in and with. That is the picture that it gives. We are invited into this story that is ostentatious, that is incredible. We are invited to believe there can be a physical resurrection, that there can be a new and different world, and that we can play a part in that world to come. So that raises the question, and I hate talking about this, and I'll try and do it somewhat quickly because I am running out of time as well. So what about, well, the other place? What about hell? What does the Bible say about that? So I'm going to give you the definition from the Westminster Articles of Faith, which to some of you will mean nothing, to some of you will mean everything, maybe more than it should. But the wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast into eternal torments and punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. It sounds serious. It sounds like that's language that I'm like, wow, I'm I'm not sure I would use that language. But... For thousands of years, followers of Jesus have taken seriously the idea that there is this eternal thing to come, that there is both good and bad sides to that. And for probably the last hundred years, 
most of the Western church has run from this concept as quickly as they possibly can because it is terrifying. I would love to say that there was no conversation about hell within the Bible. That would be a joy to me to be able to say. And yet I read ideas like this within Jesus' writing. This is not Matthew 5, Matthew 25. Have to blame the person that did the screens. It was me. But they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. There's this moment where it describes a pathway that splits, and one group goes one way, and one group goes the other way. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean they will find themselves in eternal conscious torment, to use the classical definition? The truth is, I don't know. And there's been some great scholars in the theological world that have fallen out over this argument. To throw out a couple of names that will mean nothing to you if you're not in the church movement, but if you are, you will know maybe these names. J.I. Packer and John Stott both read this and came to completely different conclusions. One of them said, I see this moment of annihilation where it all ends there. And one of them said, I see these never-ending years of eternal conscious torment. And they fell out over this discussion. Now, you may believe either of these, but what I would suggest is this. We can all agree is that Jesus talks about hell as something that is real, and he talks about it as a direction that he doesn't want us to go in. And he talks constantly about an invite to life. It seems like when you think about it in terms of analogy driving towards a cliff, Jesus is the, is the person who says, I am like the guy that's saying, don't go that way. I am the guy begging you saying, don't make that decision. Now, the person that lets you drive off is really no friend whatsoever. The person that doesn't want to give you the bad news is not really someone who is on your side. And Jesus is very clear. There is life, there is death, but his constant imploring is, choose life. I ask that you would choose life. If we were in any doubt of that, Paul gives us this writing. In, as he writes to Timothy, a young pastor that he's been training, he wants, us not, not, he wants not only us, but everyone saved. You know, everyone to get to know the truth we've learned. That there's one God and only one, and one priest, mediator, one go-between between God and us. Jesus, who offered himself in exchange for everyone held captive by sin to set them all free. Eventually, the news is going to get out. This and this only has been my appointed work, getting this news to those who have never heard of God, explaining how it works by simple faith and plain truth. Paul is like, I'm saying to people over and over again, there is a fork in the road, choose the right path. It is open to you, choose it, take it. This is the constant message. I have no idea what hell looks like. I don't know how that works. And one of the things I've discovered is this. This maybe will be helpful to you. When there's something I don't understand that the writers of the Bible try and unpack, I have a couple of options. I can try and explain it away, or I can admit my own limitation and say, I'm not sure how that works. I'm not sure how it sounds fair. I'm not sure how the journey takes place. I'm not sure what it looks like. I'm not sure if the fire is real. But what I can say is this constantly, the writers in the New Testament are saying, there is a choice and you And I, we get to make it. C.S. Lewis, the English writer, said this. He said, when it comes down to it, the choice to go to hell, however that appears, whatever it looks like, is simply down to this. God says to every one of us, I would love that you would say to me, your will be done. I would love that you would choose this life that you have offered. But eventually there comes a moment where God says to each of us, 
well, your will be done. You get to choose the path. And when we think about the idea of hell, one of the things that I think is most helpful is this. Ultimately, is the personal choice to separate from God. The separation from God is a torment as great as God. Imagine everything good in the world that might disappear. Think about the fact that this is a God who causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. There are so many incredible things in this world that each of us get to experience. And imagine a world where none of those good things existed. That maybe gives us a way of getting to the bottom of this question of what does new creation, heaven, this good choice look like? And what does the other look like? Again, not super easy to get to the bottom of. And something that I, as a pastor, would much rather say, I'm going to pretend that that Jesus never mentions any of that stuff. That he just kind of says, it's going to work out fine for everybody in the end. And yet that just doesn't honor the message that he gives. And I wonder if it really honors what he did. Ultimately, the message of the New Testament comes down to a rescue mission. It is God coming into this world for us, out of love for us, to do something for us, to invite us into this new life. I don't know if it honors what Jesus did to say, he really saved us from nothing. The constant message of these New Testament writers is there is a thing to avoid. Hell has this reality to it, but you are given this wonderful choice. Choose life. Come and choose life. So as I invite Jake and the team up onto the stage, we're going to walk into communion. I'm going to ask you this question. How do you respond to the story? Are you participating in Jesus' offer of life and the world to come? How does that story sound to you? I can understand it feeling hard to believe at times because it just is so good. And yet I don't understand not wanting it to be true. Maybe it's time you investigated it for yourself in a new way. We've been doing uh, a few weeks of taking communion every week. Some of you may know this by different names. You may have grown up calling it Mass, the Lord's Table, Eucharist, any of those different things. It is the same process. It is a moment of remembrance where we remember that Jesus came and gave his life. This table is open to anyone who is choosing to follow in the way of Jesus. And if you are not doing that right now, you can choose to do that for yourself in this moment and it becomes open to you. It is both physical and it is spiritual. It is bread and it is wine, but it symbolizes Jesus' sacrifice of of body and blood. And so we gather and we do this in remembrance of Jesus who came out of love for us, who came that we might experience the resurrection he experienced, that we might experience life in the world to come, that we might rule and reign with him, that we might see a new world where the sea is gone, not because the sea is bad, but because this world is ruled by a God who is in control of all of it. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus gathered with his earliest followers. During the course of the meal, he took the bread and he broke it. And he handed it to each of them and said, this is my body broken for you. Take it and remember me. In the same way, he took the wine handed it to each of them and said, this is my blood shared for the sins of the world. As long as you gather together, do this in remembrance of me. In this moment, the bridge between physical and spiritual is broken. In this moment, Jesus is present in a distinct way. He walks alongside you and says, come this way. Come into life. Come into journey with me. 
walk in my way. I made you. I know what you are made for. And you are made for this. Wherever you are, whatever you have done, however broken you feel, you are invited in, into this story. As the Bible articulates ideas like heaven and hell, at no point does it say what you have done discludes you from the good life that God has on offer. It simply says, come as you are. Jesus, in this moment, we ask you to be present. For each of us walking our own journeys, we're going to go out into bright sunshine, into the good gift of life. May you speak to us in this moment as we pause just a little longer, as we slow just a little longer from a life that leads us at an incredibly fast pace, that leads us on to thing after thing after thing. We do what you asked us to do and we slow down and remember you. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org slash give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South family. Have a great rest of your day.